Hey, Chris. Hey, Devin. Welcome to Yoga for the Body Politic. We are, this is like episode seven. Um, we're going to stick with our interview style, but we're going to change it up a little bit today because we're going to go like expert a little bit <laughs> because Chris has a lot of great information that I know I want and probably other people want about the philosophical field of ethics and how you do it. Yes. It's something that I really like when Chris talks about philosophy. Mm-hmm. She says, do it. <laughs> I like that because I'm interested in practices. So, And ethics is a practice. So I'm going to ask her some questions to try to draw out the, what she knows and what she thinks we might benefit from knowing. And also about how that relates to the work that we're doing on this show and the also the body stuff, the, the felt stuff, Yeah, how that connects. That sounds really good. Okay. So just to start in the simplest sense, will you talk a little bit about your background with ethics and how it fits inside philosophy? So... I have two degrees in philosophy, my undergrad degree and a master's degree, and both of those are from the University of Colorado, where I did not study ethics more than I was required to, but I was required to study it a bit. And I teach ethics. It's one of the classes I teach on a regular basis. Ethics is one of the three main subfields of philosophy, three to five main subfields. Mm -hmm. So... Um, You don't really need to know about the others, but ethics is part of axiology, which is the study of values. Mm -hmm. And so ethics is a study of a particular type of value, which is often said as moral value. But since philosophers tend to use morality and ethics interchangeably, I think a better way to think about ethics is the study of something like relationship values. Mm between individuals. And ethics itself is a really big field. Right now, I'm just talking about Western analytic philosophy. And there's lots of subfields of ethics. Yeah, it's about values and the way that we can come into contact with values and what values are worth keeping and how those values impact our lives. So, for instance, Aristotle who developed a theory of ethics, which is often called Aristotelian or virtue ethics. The reason that he did this was because he was interested in what it is to have a good life. His answer was to have a good life is to develop certain traits, virtues, four main ones plus sort of a fifth one. And the fifth one is wisdom. What wisdom is, is the correct combination of emotional and rational awareness so that you can react properly in any given situation. Hmm. Is he your favorite? I mean, of the Western philosophers, I'd say, yeah. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I like about Aristotle is that this idea of wisdom being the driver of our ethical action, first of all, he's very aware and insistent that emotion is part of this and a lot of western philosophers Mm -hmm. reject emotion and the body Mm -hmm. as something that we should pay attention to at all Mm -hmm. in ethics Mm -hmm. but he's also not saying let your emotions override and be the thing that makes you decide what's right or wrong because we can all think of times when we let our emotions do that and then 
we made a morally wrong decision. And then our emotions went and changed. Right. To something else later. Yeah. So wisdom is also prajna, which Mm. is from an Eastern background of ethics. Mm -hmm. I've also informally done study of Buddhist and Hindu, especially yoga ethics. Mm. Aristotle is a nice bridge between them because of the centrality of wisdom and because of the focus on virtue. And although the virtues he picks out are somewhat different than the virtues of Buddhism, they have a lot of overlapping. Mm. So the main virtues that Aristotle talks about are courage, which is correct action in the face of a dangerous situation. So for Aristotle, all of the virtues are sort of on a a scale. There's too much and too little on either end. And then the virtue is the one in the middle. Mm. So to be Mm -hmm. courageous is to act with enough consistency and like going toward the danger without going toward it too quickly or without thinking. Mm -hmm. So on one end of the too much, we have rashness. Mm -hmm. And on the other end, we have cowardice. Mm. And also the position of the middle will change according to the person's abilities Mm -hmm. and their practice of ethics. Mm -hmm. So for Aristotle, ethics is an everyday practice. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm telling this to my students, you can think of something that's a little bit scary for you, like speaking up in class. Mm -hmm. And then it's virtuous. It's a practice of ethics to make yourself speak up in class, Mm -hmm. both because you want to, with this particular act, get more toward the middle of courageous, and because then you've practiced being courageous in a situation that's relatively safe for you, such that when you're in a situation that there's much more at stake, you already have a practice built inside of you Mm -hmm. of moving toward courage rather than moving toward rashness or cowardice. Mm Aristotle is saying that the end goal of all of these various practices of getting closer to the middle and finding your strength in the middle of the various skills is about having a good life. Yeah, having a good life and achieving what is often translated, well, it's eudaimonia or Mm. eudaimonia, Mm -hmm. which is this Greek word that's often translated as happiness, but we might better translate it as welfare or Mm. a good life Mm -hmm. and this isn't a life that is doesn't include sadness Mm -hmm. or difficulty Mm -hmm. because being virtuous is difficult and means you have to do things that are hard for you Mm -hmm. a lot of times Mm -hmm. but it does mean that you have i'm going to use one of your terms like the right sizedness Mm -hmm. of your ability Mm -hmm. yeah Lately, I, I just bump into a lot that the word I want so often is just humanity. Yeah. That having access to really experiencing my own humanity is part of what I want. Yeah. Which is fear or difficulty and is also pleasure and connection. Yeah. And I like that you say that. And I think it ties in with Aristotle, too. We don't just have to talk about Aristotle. I just automatically mm. go there because he connects with other parts of ethics that yeah, I like. Um, yeah. He says oh, the, the spectrum is so good. Yeah, the spectrum's really cool. And the other thing that's really cool is that he thinks you can't be ethical in a void. Mm-hmm. You need some things in right. order to be right. ethical. Right. Right. And one of those things is other people. Mm-hmm. You need other people both to be your teachers and mentors and to give you someone to practice ethics with. Mentorship and friendship are really central in Aristotle's view of ethics. 
if you are around people all the time who don't care about ethics, who mm. don't think it's valuable, yeah. Yeah. or who have values that are very unvirtuous, then you are unlikely to practice virtue. And if you yeah. are around people who are interested, then you are or supportive, mm-hmm. then you're you're more likely to do it. And he also thinks you can't be a bad person. You can be mistaken. You can have to pull on Buddhism a little bit, delusion Mm -hmm. about what the right thing to do is, ignorance, but you can't be a bad person. Mm -hmm. You can just be unvirtuous and you could become virtuous if you had the right sort of things. Mm -hmm. You also need things like enough food Mm -hmm. and shelter. And it's not that you can't be virtuous without those things, but that it's much easier for you to continually practice virtue if you aren't consistently hungry. Mm-hmm. Really right here with you, Aristotle, <laughs> on that one. There's so much good stuff in there. I am not even sure if I'm going to be able to dig into all of it. Take an ethics class. <laughs> it's great. It's so good. Yeah. And I, I can feel already the, the thing that I hoped to feel, which is the way that a solid practice can help us come out of judgment. Judgment can mean anything, but I really often use it to mean the kind of self-doubt or pigeonholing or categorizing or just kind of the narrative hook that we do to push something away, Mm -hmm. to make it irrelevant to our lives or to define ourselves as separate from Mm -hmm. it. And that so often to me kills the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I'm always looking for practices and tools because I have a judgmental mind. So I'm always looking for practices and tools where I can like, yeah, apply a structure because when I'm in the pinchy judgment place, it's like either this or this, Mm -hmm. either this or this. Mm -hmm. Just hearing you introduce these pragmatic and functional in the way that tools are functional, you know, like Mm -hmm. calipers. And one of the things I think, I don't remember if Aristotle says this or not, but as I was talking about, there's like this whole scale of characteristics and the virtuous one is in the middle, he calls it the golden mean. But imagine two people. Imagine that I'm born, for whatever reason, my upbringing, my characteristics, whatever, I am much inclined toward knowing what to do in a dangerous situation, Mm -hmm. and Devin is not. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that I'm more virtuous than Devin, because these are just our sort of natural tendencies. Mm -hmm. Devin could be more virtuous than me if Devin sets herself toward acting more courageously, realizing that she's prone to cowardice and wanting to be more brave. I just accidentally keep doing the right thing, whereas Devin has a practice of moving toward it. And so that's an important part, too. Yeah. And it can continually change throughout our lives. Like, a child could be very courageous in a situation where the thing they do is tell an adult. Mm -hmm. An adult could be really cowardly in Mm -hmm. the same situation when what they do is tell an adult. Right. So it's really contextualized in terms of ability and where you're coming from. Yeah. That strikes me as the right thing. Yes. I think a a big mistake about ethics is that it's this black and white. Mm -hmm. There's no gray area and you're either being moral or you're not. Maybe in some sense that's true, but I think ethics is about the relationship between individuals and individuals. Each of us 
are complex, nuanced people Mm. that have come from so many different places. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, ethics, which is about the relationship between these two individuals, Mm -hmm. is going to be a really complex, nuanced, difficult thing. Mm -hmm. And there could be five different right things to do depending on the person who's the actor, which doesn't mean that ethics is only about an individual or that um, there isn't a single right thing to do. Right, 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 which is so juicy because we're in a spectrum between that black and white thing that you were describing, right, which is like so often very hierarchical because Mm -hmm. it has to do with who you learned from, Mm -hmm. what's good and what's not good, and is so often not evolving. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's the that sense of like, what was the, the horrible thing that they would wave at us? Cultural relativity. Right. That I would say of my students, oh, they don't have to abide by this thing mm-hmm. because they're they're culturally different. Yeah, or right? the way that it often comes up with cultural relativism is, well, it's fine for them. Right. But it's not fine for us. Or, oh, it was fine in the 1850s in Georgia that there was slavery because that was part of their culture. But, of course, that's false. It was always wrong to own other people. Right. And yet, if the only thing we can do to prove that it was always wrong is go back to some kind of black and white, hierarchical, and especially like inhumane mm-hmm. in the sense of not considering human factors, mm-hmm. not allowing for complication, then once again, you're in that judgment place right. of like either or. And so much of, I think, what's interesting these days when people are seeking, you know, like Oregon Humanities does this whole project of trying to have facilitated conversations in communities Mm -hmm. between people who are in different places on the political spectrum Mm -hmm. about any particular issue. So there's all this really interesting practice in how they're teaching these volunteer facilitators to hold the conversation. And so much of this reminds me of that in the sense that it's like, how do we come out of... Either or. Mm -hmm. And come into including different parts of the experience. And we don't have to look at the slaveholders in Georgia and be like, they are very bad, unforgivable, Mm -hmm. completely ruined people. Right. We can look at them with compassion and understanding and still say this is a horrific thing right. that they're allowing to happen. Right. That and still continuing. say there's tons of space for people who, who feel personally harmed mm-hmm. by that historical circumstance mm-hmm. to be furious. Right, right. Ethics can be, can be, isn't always, mm-hmm. but can be this net for us to spill out all of the things and look at what the values are and say, if we value compassion, then we have compassion for the slaveholder and for the slaves and their ancestors. Mm-hmm. And the way that the compassion comes out looks different. Right. But the compassion is the value that we are acting from. Well, it looks different and also looks different depending on who I am right. and where I'm standing. Yes. Right. Which is that thing that I hear you saying about Aristotle. One of the things we're really including is what am I showing up to the game with, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. that so often gets cut out of ethical right. conversations right. where no matter who you are, the good action looks the same. Right. And so often that's not right. reflective of lived conditions. Yes. So we just talked 
through a lot of a lot of what this question is, but I'm still going to give it to you and see what you have. When you come to the body politic process, where do you feel like having the ethical philosophical framework is an important tool for you? Mm-hmm. Or where do you feel like on the other end of the spectrum, where do you feel like it's not enough? And maybe yeah. one part of that is for you to talk more about Eastern ethics. Yeah. And along with that, I'm going to push back a little bit. You used the term formal, informal <laughs> about your study. And right away, I was like, it wasn't informal, your study of Buddhist ethics. That's formal. You have had teachers. That's true. You pursue it doggedly. You're using texts. Like that all feels very formal to me. And so I'm wanting to maybe apply a word like academically or institutionally. That's good. That's a better way to categorize. Yeah, because it's so easy, right, for things like any kind of Eastern study to become less formal than a Western study. And actually, I do have academic background in Buddhist ethics, too, because I did take some classes in college. I just conveniently forgot about them. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so much easier to be to be credentialed in a Western context in the study of Western things. Yes. And it seems so much more legitimate. It's true. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. Um, Yeah, there's enough people who've undermined that. I don't have to also. That's right. Okay, so how does this ethics inform body politics stuff? When I was in college and when I was in grad school, I intentionally did not study ethics because it wasn't taken seriously as a thing within my department, which isn't entirely true. There were some great ethics, but like some of the professors would say things like, you should study ethics because you're a woman and that's the easy part of philosophy. So I doggedly did not want to study ethics just because I was a woman. I also doggedly did not want to study uh, feminist philosophy because that was the other direction I got pushed to. And feminist philosophy and ethics have some overlap. But because of some of the things that happened in my undergraduate and graduate education, I got real quick acquainted with feminism (laughs) and saw its value. After that opening, I reinvestigated some of the things that the jerk people had told me Mm. about what the value of ethics was. And now I think that ethics is maybe the most important part of philosophy because it's the part that actually has a function in the world. Mm -hmm. Like metaphysics is awesome and fun and important in some ways, but the thing I'm interested in is, is people. Which is one of the things that, that there is to shame people for in academic settings, being interested in people. And so then when I started teaching, I was asked to teach an ethics class. Um, That was kind of the first time I really dove in. Um, I had to take ethics because, as I said, it's a major chunk of philosophy. So there's, you know, in any academic field, you have to take this many of this kind of classes. Mm -hmm. So I took this many of that kind of classes. The text that really made a difference for me is Anthony Weston's A 21st Century Toolbox, Mm -hmm. Ethical Toolbox. Mm -hmm. What's great about it and what's different about it than a lot of ethical texts 
is its focus on ethical practice. So the first time I taught ethics, I hadn't found this text yet, and I just taught ethics the way that I had been taught it, which was to look over the three major theories of which Aristotelianism is one, the other two main ones are utilitarianism and deontology. Mm -hmm. And it was very dry and very boring. (laughs) When I found this text, it was kind of a big deal Mm -hmm. because it was like, Ethics is not just theory. Ethics is a thing that we do in the world, whether we know that we're doing it or not, because ethics is just a way of being. To be in relationship of any type, Mm -hmm. which even means sitting alone by yourself in a room, Mm -hmm. is ethics. Mm -hmm. And so this textbook and teaching from this textbook, my students had projects that they were required to do as part of the class. And I've let them get gradually more weird. (laughs) Most recently, one of my students did one on listening. Their whole ethical practice was to listen. And Mm. they were like, this changed my life. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess just attending to it, the effect of ethics in the world Mm -hmm. broadened the effect that I could have in the world. Mm That ties in with the body politic because I was very interested, I am very interested about what effect I can have in the world. Mm. And I'm looking for opportunities to have an effect in the world. And body politics seems to me Mm -hmm. like one way that I might. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of teaching. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of Mm self-exploration. And when I say ethics is about relationship, I want to be very clear that it includes relationship with oneself. Mm -hmm. And that's where it ties in with Eastern ethics Mm. from Buddhism and yogic ethics. Because the practices of those, more so than the practices of Western ethics, with maybe the exception of Aristotle, note that to practice compassion, for instance, you start with yourself. Mm And then it's sort of a done deal that it comes out of you. Mm-hmm. Or to practice nonviolence, you start noticing the ways in which you're violent toward yourself. Mm-hmm. And that makes it easier to notice the ways that you're violent towards others. Mm-hmm. And when you can see within yourself the ways that these practices hurt you, and you don't want to be hurt, and you can stop hurting yourself sometimes, then once you have that developed, it just comes out. It's not like an effort. Right. The effort is changing it in yourself. That's or a maybe really... still you have to be courageous to, to do the, right. the bit, but the content mm-hmm. or the ability, mm-hmm. the like how you would do it mm-hmm. is there. And like you have to be courageous to look at yourself and say, here's the thing I want in the world, even though other people don't want me to have it or think it's wrong or bad or gross or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or... It takes a great deal of honesty to look at yourself and say, what are actually my motivations? At least in my experience, those are the hardest things. And when I can consistently, and I can't, but when I can consistently (laughs) be honest with myself, then it just comes out of me to Mm -hmm. be honest with other people Mm -hmm. because I've already been honest with myself. And yoga for the body politic is about having these conversations with ourselves, Mm -hmm. finding ways to support ourselves when we're having these conversations so it just comes out of us. Mm -hmm. And building communities 
that are interested in having these conversations with ourselves. Exactly, right? Which is that piece, again, from Aristotle of if you are surrounded by these people, how much easier it's like food. It makes it that much easier to do the inquiry and to do the labor. Yeah. One of the things I think about is I can see the ripples of making these choices in myself Mm. come into other people. Like with my students sometimes in little ways or with my family members or my close friends. Yeah. This isn't to say like, oh, I'm out here being ethical and changing everyone's <laughs> minds. <laughs> it, well, it goes, every, it goes all the ways. Like, it does go all the ways. Like they've all had effects on me too. Yeah. And, and the ripples that I make from little acts of panicky selfishness mm-hmm. impact mm-hmm. the people around me mm-hmm. and play out in their sense of scarcity mm-hmm. and their need to, to make sure they have enough. Mm-hmm. And that's very much valuable when people say things like, well, it doesn't matter if I recycle or whatever. And maybe recycling is not a good one because (laughs) whatever, but um, (laughs) it does make an effect because we have community and relationship with each other and we affect our communities and relationships and they affect us. So if we decide together, we're going to do this work, then the ways in which we do the work and the work itself and what we think is valuable about the work or the ways in which we can see how it impacts different problems or situations that seem initially really disparate from each other. Mm -hmm. This is so valuable. Like it doesn't feel like being a small person in the face of these enormous problems. It Mm -hmm. feels like I made this choice to be honest Mm -hmm. and I can see how that's affecting everyone else. Honesty is not just saying the thing that comes to your mind first. Honesty is noticing what comes to your mind and wondering if it's true and then imagining the right time and the right place and the right person. It's not just a, you know. Yeah. Honesty is an ethical practice all in itself, right? It's that same thing of like, where are you on the spectrum? Where do you show up naturally? You know, my tendency to share even if it's wrong and then be happy to come back later and say I was wrong and then share again is just my tendency. Yeah. And it works sometimes and it works with some people. Yeah. You know, my husband's tendency to not share at all until he's decided how it is works sometimes and with some people. And in order to be able to communicate with each other, we both have to work toward Mm -hmm. The golden mean. Right. Which I feel like is so one of those pieces of the ripples is like even for us to be able to contact each other at all, we have to be doing the kind of noticing that is, yeah, noticing how I'm reacting to the situation and noticing how it's impacting other people Mm -hmm. and hearing from them Mm -hmm. how it's impacting them Mm -hmm. and pushing for a golden mean that's not just between two abstractions, but between two actual people. Right. So that we can talk. That can be a lot of bouncing back and forth because it's a practice. Mm -hmm. Aristotle compares learning how to be virtuous with learning how to shoot an arrow Mm -hmm. or play darts. Mm -hmm. You've got this central thing that you're aiming for. Mm -hmm. And when you first start, you're probably not going to hit it that much. And if you do hit it, it was probably by accident. But you can also learn from how you hit it by accident. Mm -hmm. You need another person like a coach 
to be like, oh, look, you hit it that time. And I noticed that you did this thing with your fingers Mm -hmm. or whatever. You have goals when you're trying to learn how to throw darts or shoot an arrow, which is to get things in the middle and to get things consistent Mm -hmm. and to get various shapes of things, various situations still in the same area. Mm That area is bigger or smaller, maybe, or whatever. You you can adjust the metaphor in any yeah. way. But what I like about it is that I think it's a really apt description of any sort of practice, mm-hmm. is that when you throw it at first, you're going to get it all over the board and maybe sometimes in the wall. And as you keep aiming toward the middle, it's just going to fluctuate wildly what it looks like. And the more you practice and get feedback from people who you trust and who you think are good advisors for this type of thing, the better chance you have at getting toward the middle. And if you decide to stop practicing because you think you did enough and you're getting it really consistent now, it's going to become less consistent. And there is not a perfect place to stop. It's a project the whole time. The whole time that you have relationship with other people, it's a practice. Yeah. The, the thing that popped into my mind when you were describing that is the practice that I have had and will continue to have my whole life in talking to people about race, letting that come up on the outside of me almost as often as it comes up on the inside of me. Mm-hmm. And then before that, the practice of like having it come up on the inside mm-hmm. of me at all and not shoving it back down yeah. or not being totally shocked and disturbed yeah. that it came up. What so often... I say to other white people is like, don't be afraid to mess it up. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Do it wrong. Because the biggest thing that gets in our way is being afraid to do it wrong. Yeah. And not wanting to throw the dart at all. Yeah. That's not a way to practice. Even if you're not throwing the dart at other people or something, you're still not getting any practice in getting it in the middle well and it's that thing that's like and you're probably going to accidentally throw it at other people because you don't know how to throw it at all and it's that thing that we've talked about here before which is like you're actually fucking throwing darts anyway right you were already making microaggressions all the time and if you let yourself notice race you have a chance of doing fewer of those and you'll do it wrong but at least you won't do that particular wrong over and over and over again for the rest of your life you could do a different wrong and those habits those get strong too. And you can get more consistent in your vice and you can get more drawn toward cowardice or recklessness because that's probably what will happen if you don't intentionally practice toward courage. Even if while you're practicing towards courage, you're bouncing back and forth between cowardice and recklessness nonstop. And also you're, you're doing that ripples thing Mm -hmm. of gathering people around you who are interested in working on themselves, Mm -hmm. who are interested in the kinds of impacts that they're having and looking at, are those impacts helping me grow instead of that facilitating of, of, of sort of the comfort of being surrounded only by the people who are going to tell me that, that yes, we're all right, already right. Another thing that I like about Aristotelian ethics that overlaps with Buddhist ethics and yogic ethics, all of them are varieties of virtue ethics. So one of the things I like about virtue ethics is that the virtue ethics don't hang out alone. All of them are interconnected. The four major ones for Aristotle are courage, temperance, prudence, and justice. And those, You just did that so fast. Sorry. Courage, temperance, prudence, and justice. 
And those point toward wisdom, which is, like I said, the proper combination. These four make like a little pyramid Mm -hmm. and then you get wisdom in the middle. Yeah, sort of. Uh So the more you practice these four, the more wisdom you develop. Mm. And the more wisdom you develop, the easier it is to practice the four. Mm. So it's sort of a cycle. Mm -hmm. And similarly, like if you look at the Noble Eightfold Path, for instance, it's a circle because all of these different virtues... I don't think I can list all eight right now, but it's like a wheel with spokes. So you can practice them sort of individually. And that's if you're like toward the outside of the spokes. Mm -hmm. But the more you practice them, the more you draw toward the middle where they all they're self-fulfilling and connect with each other. And the same with the yamas and niyamas. Mm Which are which yogic. is really similar to what you were saying about when you do the work in yourself, you're just closer to the center of the wheel. Pushing the wheel around from closer to the center is more easeful, mm-hmm. and the power that you generate reaches out naturally. Mm-hmm. But when you're pushing from the outside, you're using so much energy to do the push, and it yeah. spins off, it spins out yeah. instead of going in. Right. And, and toward- that's really like the technology of just humanity. Being a person and being able to do inner work gives us this opportunity to be so much more powerful. Mm-hmm. That's nice. I like that. It is more powerful. Like when you get to the point where you're like, oh, look, honesty and courage are actually the same. Mm. Mm. It's more easeful to have honesty and courage. Okay. Um, I'm interested in... And, and we're, we're speaking to it, you know, when we're like, wow, the technology of having a human body and having introspection and having a psychology and having a, a genuine, uncoverable desire for love and recognition and belonging. That's the biggest thing we have on our side. That is our great superpower yeah. for growing more ethical communities yeah. and um, for growing our own satisfaction and fulfillment and relationship. I want to really rope in the embodiment piece Mm -hmm. because that to me feels like it is the technology. Yeah. And it is the reason to be ethical. Right. Right. I've been reading Gita Iyengar's Yoga, A Gem for Women. Mm. How is it? (laughs) It's so good. Yay. It's like light on life. No, light on yoga, except for women. No, light on life. Light on yoga is just like. It's maybe a combination of them. Okay, all right. But she does postures and she stuff. She does There's postures. pictures of postures. Mm-hmm. Okay. And like half of the book is how to sit in Dandasana uh, or uh-huh. whatever. Okay, but it's for women. But it's for women. Good for her. Which is great. Yeah. Uh, and there's like all these pictures of her doing like headstand when she's nine months pregnant. <laughs> I did that too. There were so many yoga poses I could not do when I was pregnant, but headstand, but headstand was, was one of fine them. <laughs> the whole time. Anyway... So she and her father, BKS Iyengar, talk about the way that yoga, asana, leads to a more ethical Mm. life. That's my experience also. And Peter Singer, who is a Western analytic philosopher, Mm -hmm. um, very well known. He's a utilitarian. I have this little video of him, and the question is, why be ethical and he's like well ultimately because it benefits you which i think is sort of backwards like i was saying but the right idea ethics is about relationship Mm -hmm. and that includes 
relationship with yourself Mm -hmm. and having a healthy relationship with yourself Mm -hmm. and your body means that you are capable of addressing these deep ethical needs. So Mm -hmm. like I was saying uh, earlier about Aristotle recognizing that it's much harder to be ethical when you're starving. Mm -hmm. It's because your body need is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so your body has to be taken care of Mm -hmm. in order for it to take care of other bodies. That's the thing that yoga can do is a way to have relationship with your body and a way to take care of Mm -hmm. your body. Mm -hmm. When you are satisfied or content or have ease within yourself, first of all, it's harder to hold things against other people. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm feeling okay with myself and my needs are met and you come take something from me, then I'm inclined to think, I guess Devin really needed that. Rather than well, Devin, maybe how if dare you're she? doing your ethical practice exactly because I certainly have known some very well supported people. Well, we can look at the history of like <laughs> imperialism as a counterexample to what I'm saying, but that doesn't drive us toward healthy relationship with our bodies. Right. That to me is this juicy part because. Like, as you're talking, of course, my brain is like, counterexample, counterexample. The the counterexamples that I have are all so much, A, they come from just sort of taking the information at face value, right? Mm-hmm. And being like, well, if you have enough food, then you're going to be more ethical. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That statement or, on its own is clearly false. Right. Exactly. When what we're, what we're saying, you know, intentionally is hunger makes it harder to be ethical, mm-hmm. which feels so true. Like the organism, your humanity doesn't work as well because your human mm-hmm. self is deprived. Mm-hmm. It's a conditional, <laughs> not <laughs> a biconditional. Right, exactly. It doesn't go both ways across the equal sign. Right. Um, one of the one of the other things that I had was this idea that doing yogasana on its own will help produce more ethical behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because. As a person who's been in like the not just the yoga communities, but in the yoga industry mm-hmm. for years and mm-hmm. years, I felt really gratified when people started being more overt about how yoga asana on its own was not going to make mm-hmm. you a more ethical person mm-hmm. unless that was your objective. Yeah. And that there were all of these places where people were not only harming other people with the emphasis on a certain kind of body type belonging in in yoga spaces or with the emphasis on needing access to certain uh, things in order to belong in a yoga community. But they were also harming themselves. That that kind of emphasis produced injury. And when we started to look at all of that all at once across the yoga industry and there's more and more and more noticing to be done it fulfills that thing that we talk about in body politic which is that we also have shared bodies right and that harm to our shared bodies is harm to members of our communities who are more vulnerable yeah in the same way that harm in my body is harm to whatever i'm most likely to injure if i'm doing my yoga asana with the goal of being beautiful to people who are really have a narrow definition of beauty. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. I've been lucky in the last few years to be in yoga communities that mm. are not like that. Yeah. But for many years before, 
I didn't do yoga because that was my impression of yoga. And I worked for Yoga Journal, which is <laughs> Yoga Journal. <sighs> um, <laughs> you're totally right. And I also really appreciate that you brought up the microcosm of an individual body in the context of a community. That's the thing I've been trying to point at, you know, where my inside myself, where my weaknesses or vulnerabilities or overused spots Mm -hmm. are. If I don't know where those are, if I'm not interested in them, I'm likely to continually abuse them Mm -hmm. in the same way that if I'm not practicing ethics, I'm likely to continue abusing people who are more vulnerable than I am. Yeah. Yeah. Just this morning, I was um, often thinking about in my ripples, it can feel so much more powerful to impact someone you don't know, because it's like a bigger ripple. And I'm really often calling myself back to myself Mm -hmm. um, around that, because the people who I have in my closest circles, I'm most likely to impact. Mm -hmm. They care about me the most. Mm -hmm. I'm the most likely to benefit Mm -hmm. from impacting them. And I'm most likely to find out what kind of impact I've had. Right. I'm most likely to be informed. And it's more likely to be sustainable Mm -hmm. and less likely to be about you feeling good about yourself. Exactly. So I said something this morning to my people about, because there's all the smoke in Portland right now. Because the West is just The on West fire is on fire. August. A lot of these big fires in Western America are being fought by prisoners who are being paid $2 an hour. And this is really dangerous, difficult work. And when these prisoners, when and if these prisoners are no longer prisoners, they will not be allowed to get jobs fighting fire. They will be prevented from using any of the skills that they have gained Mm. basic slavehood this is all news to me i think it's news for a lot of people and that feeling of like when it was news to me my brother fights wildfire not as a prisoner um, and makes a good living doing it destroying his body but makes a good living and I'm interested in the criminal injustice system. Mm -hmm. And those things came together in me having this information. And then, you know, I just want to get it on everyone so bad. That piece of honesty and like the ethical practice of, of that for me is important. Who can I tell this to with loving kindness? Mm -hmm. Like who can I share this dark information with in a way that isn't just like, this hurts me to know about it. And I want it to hurt you too. And so I said something to Jeff and to Zelda this morning, and it resulted in a conversation, you know, of Zelda being like, I don't understand why people want to do awful things to other people. And Zelda's your young child. Zelda's my 10-year-old. And that was one of the places, like, this comes all the way back around to what you were just saying. Jeff ended up talking to her about how possible it is for us to not know things. Yeah. And how possible it is for us to live our lives without noticing that we are participating in the harming. Yeah. Ian, who's my partner, and I were talking yesterday about how aware were the Germans that there were concentration camps. I took many years of German history and language Although we talked about World War II and concentration camps frequently, mm-hmm. and we talked about how 
easy it was for Germans to become Nazis. Mm -hmm. There's nothing inherently worse about being German than being anyone else. Mm -hmm. They just did the thing that humans did. And some of them did things out of loving uh, of their friends, Mm -hmm. like leaping on grenades, for Mm -hmm. instance, that are also heroic and brave. Mm -hmm. But the thing about the concentration camps is that there wasn't TV, mm-hmm. there wasn't internet, there was word of mouth and there was radio, but the radio was controlled by the state, mm-hmm. so it was all Nazi propaganda. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really easy, even if you have access to information, mm-hmm. not to know about it. Like right. the families being separated at the border, we have internet and TV and radio, we have all sorts of access to know what's going on there. And I imagine there's a very large percentage of people in the U.S. who don't know that that's happening right. because it's just really easy to not notice. Yeah. Yeah, I just finished reading Parable of a Sower. And again and again, she talks in the first half of the book about her denial and other people's denial. It is this huge force. Mm-hmm. Um in her understanding of the world, like Mm -hmm. really seeing Mm -hmm. what that can do. And ignorance is a reasonable reason, but it's really easy to be willfully ignorant and pretend that you're not being willfully ignorant. Right, exactly. Like this is one of the amazing things that humans can do. It's a superpower we have. Yeah. And that, that piece of ethics that's like, how do we acknowledge what we're made of you know like the listing of like these are the categories these are the places where you can go deep into denial you know and and that happens so often in ethical systems in the buddhist system in the yogic system in aristotle system there there's these setups of like you have to look at these things Mm -hmm. if you don't look at these things this is where you're going to use your superpower right and your superpower in a way that's that's going to hurt you and everybody else. And this is reminding me of two things. One is the quote that we had in I think it was episode 2 from Julia Butterfly Hill mm-hmm. about yeah. the question isn't whether you'll have an effect in the world. Right. It's what sort of effect you'll have. And the other is to quote from another podcast, the Zen Studies podcast with Domio Burke. There's something in Buddhism called the three poisons, greed, anger, and delusion. Mm -hmm. And she has a whole episode on this. Toward the end, she says something like, these come up individually, Mm -hmm. and these also come up culturally. Uh, We should just notice that they come up Mm -hmm. individually and culturally. Mm -hmm. They're not bad people or bad cultures when they come up. Mm -hmm. They're just one of the things that will come up, Mm -hmm. just like also beauty and love and trust will come up. Mm-hmm. If we just let all of these things come up, we'll have like a whole garden and mm-hmm. some of it is really ugly, awful, horrific things. And some mm-hmm. of it's really beautiful, tender, nourishing things, you know, like throwing the darts. Sometimes you'll, right. you'll hit the middle and sometimes you'll hit the wall. And that's what human nature is. And that's what social and political forces are. And the goal in ethics is to move toward the beautiful nourishing ones mm-hmm. without holding judgment for the gross ones right. because those are and again i want to come back nature. to like this word that i've learned to use from my alexander teacher um which is including when you were initially describing this aristotelian process 
it felt like you just kept being like, and also it includes this, Mm -hmm. and also it includes this. Mm -hmm. And in order for it to be a truly ethical process, we have to include this, right? Where I stand, where I'm coming from, who I'm interfacing with, where they're coming from, all these aspects of the strength of humanity and the weakness of humanity. Mm-hmm. So yes, we're, we're trying to steer the ship. But to me, really at bottom, so much of what's at the center of the circle is just having it all there. Yeah. And the way to deal with the greed, anger, and delusion, in my understanding, is not to reject them or cut them down right. or to stomp them out or to put pesticides on them or whatever (laughs) but just to be like you're here too right they'll still be there but they will be like if you have someone throwing a tantrum and it's really unpleasant and you go put your arm around them maybe their tantrum is a little bit less yeah and if you have an entire abandoned yard full of blackberries that's behind your house Then there's the thing that's like, okay, but if I'm going to really actually include all these blackberries in my garden, I have to make it so that they don't make it so that I don't have anything else in my garden. Right. They're included. And the other things are included. And the other things are included. It's like the golden mean. Yeah. It's the golden mean. (laughs) It's what I said to Zelda this morning when she she was just like, what? Why is the world so crazy? And I was like, you know, the thing that makes it possible for us to keep trying to do the good work is to say there are beautiful things and there are hard things and we're going to look at all of it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Until next time. Yes. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Deb.